Welcome again, everyone here on the second Sunday Lent. We're going to keep going, talking about Peter as we will all of Lent. That's why you have your little inserts. There we go. That's why I gave you ins bulletin inserts, but we don't have bulletins. But again, the idea is here's the picture that we're going to be talking about the art and the statement by the artist on the other side. And I noticed again, this painting today is called Liftoff. And it is painted by the Reverend Nicolette Peñaranda. Our printer does not like the little squiggly line that goes over the N. I don't remember the correct grammatical name for it, but that's why there's a space. There's supposed to be an N with a squiggly line. Our printer will not do it. Don't know why. But uh, the Reverend Peñaranda is the ELCA Director of African Descent Ministries. So. Uh, another good Lutheran painting today. And, of course, here's Peter, right? It's a, this is kind of an image of him falling into the water, Jesus' hand lifting him up. Now, the sea, you've got to remember with all of this, is that the sea and the water figure big in the Bible because, particularly for the Jewish people, they were always kind of, the sea was always kind of a scary thing. Now, this is the Sea of Galilee, which is a, a big freshwater lake, but I think the, the idea behind it runs throughout the whole thing. That the sea is kind of a big, dark, scary, uncontrollable place. And for the most part, the Jewish people avoided it. They, they totally avoided the Mediterranean, even though they were so close. And they had a kind of a vision that the sea was not necessarily even God's place. Uh, look at how the Bible begins. Genesis 1, right? Goes back. The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. I feel like you need it. needs more gravitas, right? But this is where it begins. How does it begin? Everything is just a gigantic, dark, stormy ball of water. Or in the Psalms, Psalm 69. Do not let the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. But you can tell they really didn't trust the water, did they? It was the deep. You can't see what's at the bottom. You don't always know what's in there. How can you trust it? Or Psalm 42. Deep calls to deep at the thunder of your cataracts. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. You get the picture here, right? The sea, the waters, they're these dark, mysterious powers. And God creates the universe by commanding them to be still, by forming them, controlling them, separating them. We know that God is God in Genesis because God has the power to control the waters. Even that big, scary, rocking, wavy ocean thingy God is in control of that. So when Jesus steps on the water, it's not just about the water. I, and I know there's been libraries full of ink spilled with people trying to come up with a rational explanation for Jesus walking on water. I think they all kind of miss the point. Like, have you heard the one about the rocks? That says, that says Jesus didn't really walk on water. You know, it's a miracle. Miracles don't happen. He knew where the rocks were. 
I'm like, well, Peter would have known where the rocks were. He grew up there too. Or it was the curvature of the earth creating an optical illusion. I'm like, the sea's not that big. You're kind of missing the point. It's about showing that God is still the power that calms the sea. That God is the voice that speaks to the waters and the spirit that moves over them. And when Peter puts Jesus to the test, command me to walk over the water. It's a little bit like, are you really God? And I love how Jesus is like, yeah, go ahead. I, I'll call your bluff on this one. Go ahead, walk on water. And then, of course, Peter being Peter, he doesn't analyze that. He just runs right out. And it works. And it works for a while until it doesn't, right? But you got to read closely to see when it doesn't work. To get the story here, Matthew 14. But when he, Peter, noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now notice, he walked for a while. It was not a question for Peter of whether he could defy the physics. That was not what he doubted. He didn't suddenly think, oh, Jesus gave me power to walk, but wait, now he doesn't? He didn't doubt until what? The strong wind came. The strong wind is what made him frightened. The, 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 doubt, was, the doubt was not, can Jesus get me to walk on water? The doubt was, is Jesus more powerful than the elements of the wind? Is Jesus more powerful than the storm? Is Jesus more powerful than the forces of nature? That's what he started doubting. It was easy to believe when it was still, but when it got rough, that was when Peter doubted. Peter didn't doubt till the wind came. This is in many ways one of the oldest problems in the Bible. People ask this question over and over. Will God ultimately be there for me when there is a natural disaster, a calamity, a problem I'm struggling with, a hardship? Is God still here while I'm going through a hardship? And is God able, does God actually have the power to get me through this? Peter sinking in the water is kind of a new take on the old problem. Because for thousands of years, it was those hardships that made people say, well, maybe the Lord God isn't really in charge here. Maybe I better go to this Baal guy. He says he, they say he's the thunder god. He can control it. So this is, the old, this is a new take on an old problem. So sit for a minute on that image of the dark and scary sea, of the deep void, and I know that usually we look at the get-out-of-the-boat story as kind of an analogy for stepping out in faith. Right? That's, usually how you, that's usually how I hear this, how the sermon goes, right? That, that Jesus has got some plan for you. That he's got a purpose for you. A, a venture, a business venture, a ministry venture, a, a personal uh, choice you need to make. And it's going to take you outside of your comfort zone and imply some risk. But Jesus is there saying, go ahead, step out of the boat and take the risk and do it. 
I've done that sermon, and I will do it again. Because it's a good sermon. I think a lot, a lot of times with ministry, we do uh, get nervous about stepping out in faith. But in this season of Lent, I want us to take this in a different direction. To look at that dark sea in a bit more of a personal way. A more spiritual way that takes a little bit more personal reflection and examination. One where the dark void you step into is maybe deep inside yourself. Think of it this way. I use an analogy. Say you know someone who's a neatnik. She's got a house that's perfectly clean, where company can stop by at any time, where she doesn't have to run to scrub the bathroom because company is coming. Right? And this house is so neat, so clean, picture it, there's not even dust on the top of the TV. I cannot make this claim. But this is so clean, and you've, known, and you've known her for years, you've been good friends for years, and you notice that in the back of the house, it's one of those older houses, right, that's got lots of little hidden nooks in it, and there, there's a closet in the back, and you've noticed it, and you notice she never opens it. She never talks about what's in there. So one day, while you're over and your friend gets a phone call and is busy taking the phone call, you say, oh, I wonder what's in the closet. So you go to grab the door handle, and it's one of those antique door handles. You know, the kind that's round and wobbles a little bit and has all the flowery designs imprinted. You know, the kind that people will steal from old houses and sell on eBay to be antique and shabby chic. And then you grab that wobbly handle and you creak it and it opens. And you look inside. And it's full of stuff. And it's not organized. And you're thinking, man, what's, what is this? So you pull out like boxes. And what do you start seeing? Mementos from parents. You see old family letters talking about scandals that nobody in the family talks about. You see pictures of lost boyfriends and the one with the words got away on it. There's even photos of old school events that she missed because she was too busy working late hours for a corporation that doesn't exist anymore. It's a closet full of things full of meaning that she didn't want to deal with because even the act of cleaning them out involves looking at them and reliving those memories and reliving those regrets and even the act of throwing them out is making a decision and there is so much emotion packed in those memory boxes and those photo boxes that it's easier to just lock that door and not even change the handle after you've converted the rest of the house to polished nickel. Better to keep it out of sight and out of mind. I think in many ways it's easier to take the boat thing as an analogy of stepping out. That that's a lot easier of a sell than to take the boat analogy as maybe instead of just stepping out, 
Maybe it should be a little stepping in. Maybe what I'm really afraid of and hiding from is something down in here. If I really, truly put my life in Jesus' hands, that means I'm putting my whole life in Jesus' hands. And to put my whole life in Jesus' hands means I can't keep half of it away. I have to let him love all of me. But to let him love all of me means I've got to admit there's a part of me that I'm struggling to love. It's hard. If I really, truly want Jesus to know my whole self, i got to get out of that boat and go where it's deep, go into the deep void. And I don't know if there is anything in life as scary as self-examination. I think most of us would rather drive I-10 to Phoenix (laughs) ten times a day then do serious self-examination. Let me tell you, I have some come close to Jesus more than one time on that freeway. <laughs> I think we all have, right? We all have those things in life that we wish we would have done. We all have the choices we made that in hindsight we wish could have gone the other way. We've all had the things that we did that we thought were good, and then we saw, saw what it did to someone else, and we thought, oh my gosh, did I really do that? That didn't work out. We all have those things we fear to explore and questions we're afraid to ask for fear that if I leave the boat and I step into that water and I start going over the deep, do I really believe that Jesus is going to get me to the other side? So here we are, in the season of Lent, right? Now, many generations ago, you know, there's all those mythologies about Lent, right? Lent was about, is about finding something that kind of feels good but doesn't mean anything, so you can give it up. Like, I give up chocolate bars for Lent. The giving up thing was originally for rich people, so you would have a sense of how the other 99% lived. If you were poor, every day of life was giving up. But then it kind of went from there into the 40 days of sin and guilt. Right? We have to have a season. Before we can celebrate Easter and understand how important that resurrection is, we need to know all about hell. And we need to remind you, you are a sinner. You are a sinner destined to die. And in case there was somebody think getting a little bit smug and smarmy and thinking they didn't need to confess their sins, you could pull out, you could pull out of your Jean Calvin book a doctrine, and I'm not making up this name, called total depravity. Total depravity. There is no part of you that's good. And even the good part is totally bad. Imagine growing up in a church like that, right? Hey, little Ariana, you're totally depraved. Now go to kids chat. I mean, I laugh, but I don't, I'm not asking for a raise of hands, but I'll bet I'm not the only one. I'll bet, I, I bet there, there are some of us in this room. We've heard that, right? That this was what Lent was about understanding that deep down you've probably done something wrong. You know, think about all those things you've done wrong and be guilty about it. Remember hell. And, and of course, what does it do? It makes you just not want to go to church in Lent at all. 
just skip and wait till Easter comes. But yet, yet, I think all of us do have inside of ourselves a dark pain and guilts and real regrets and things we have done that need some examination. We are kidding ourselves if we think we really are perfect. We know that. And those things, those things can be the biggest reason why often we don't approach God in prayer. Because what we're really afraid of is that if we shy stand in the light of God, God will shine a light on my inner self. Maybe that's, uh, maybe I'll half go to Jesus in prayer. And so Jesus isn't really ever really embraced fully. Because I'm not sure I can get over that dark void of guilt, the dark sea. Better to stay in the boat. So, three things. I'll give you a list of three things I think are big things that you might want to think about for Lent or that are worth examining to give, put a little handle on it. Things that keep us from a full and honest relationship of fully knowing Jesus in ourselves. First one is fear of asking questions. I know this one can maybe sound a little bit intellectually, but you know that old phrase, right? I've heard that phrase. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. You have to have a thump. And I was like, oh, if only it was that easy. And of course, I could go on for a long time about, well, which part of the Bible and which verse of the Bible, and how do you determine which part of the Bible says it, and what about that verse that I really think you don't follow that one at all, and I really don't think you believe that one, but you could go down that, right? But just the act of asking questions and posing questions and putting things to a question can sometimes send you on a spiral that can be really almost scary. You know, I remember those feelings myself. I had sitting there even in college, when, you know, this religion professor would sit up there. I had one. Her, her motto was, I'm going to beat the Sunday school out of you. And I was like, you know, you could have found a better way to put that. And she was a churchgoer. She wasn't an atheist trying to do it. But she, she, she was going to try to get you to stop being literalistic and stuff. And, and she worded it that way. And, you know, of course, when you confront like that, what do you do? What's the human nature? Human nature is to get mad. Right? Get mad. She's just attacking me. Right? She's just trying to debunk. She's trying to debunk my faith and incite a faith crisis. I don't think that was her goal, but it worked. But, which it, but what, I really, what I really meant by all of that is that opening up some of those questions get things a little bit scary. You know, having to sit and ask, did this prophecy really come true? Did, that, did, you know, did the walls of Jericho really fall when they said they fell? You know, no, they didn't. But on and on and these kind of things. It's like, ah, and then you start feeling... It goes from an intellectual thing to a spiritual thing, because pretty soon you're feeling like, man, I don't know where my footing is. I don't know where it is. That deep, dark void becomes a personal spiritual place real fast. Fortunately, Jesus is still there holding out his hand. He was for me. Two, fear of examining your own past. I mean, if you want to move forward in life, you've got to really... Be able to be honest with yourself about yourself. I remember a guy, 
he, um, very educated, super competent, and he was an engineer, uh, designed all sorts of stuff. Um, and he would go, and he had, had a big house, family, but he started drinking. Something happened with it that he did involving his wife and kids. And he would, he would allude to it, but never disclose it, never like really talk about it. And what would happen is as soon as he would confront it, he would turn to drinking. And not just a little, I mean a lot, like blacked out for days and would wake up somewhere and not know how he got there. He would drink himself blackout drunk, and then he would wake up and go, I got to do something about this. So then he'd show up at the mission and get treatment, and he would get better. And then he starts getting clean, and then he's getting better, and then he's working on things, and everyone's like, all right, this is going to work, this is going to work. You know, but in order to be truly sober and not just white knuckle, he had to ask that question. And the guys would sit there and say, okay, now let's talk about what happened with your family. And you know what would happen? He'd disappear, and we'd find him four days later somewhere in the Grant Stone area, in an alley, passed out, because there was something about... There was something in that deep void sea that he couldn't cross. And every time he went back. And it was less painful to be passed out in an alley than to have to examine whatever that was. He couldn't get past that void. And he never did. He believed Jesus loved him. He had people circling all around him. But could he love himself after what he did? I never found out exactly what it was. But he couldn't get past it. All right. Number three, fear of examining our impact on others. You know, we don't live in a vacuum. Our actions have consequences. We know that. Um, when we know when we make decisions, other people can get hurt. You know, I know there's a kind of a po common belief in the U.S., maybe in the West in general, that, you know, as long as I'm generally obeying the law and, and being nice to my neighbors and not, like, actively, like, beating and killing people when I walk down the street, that I'm a good person, and that's all it really takes. I'm not really that bad. And I'm like, okay, that's a bit of a low bar. I'll agree. Let's not go smashing people with a club while we walk down the street. Cool. But... That's kind of the superficial part. What if you looked at all the parts of your lifestyle and examined that? All the decisions you make. How many decisions do you make in, that support your lifestyle that have the effect of being harmful to others? How are ways that you participate in systems and organizations and processes that cause harm to others? Think about the car you drive, the gas it uses. Where does that come from? And the money for the gas, well, who does that pay for? Think about, think about the ring on your finger. I got a nice ring on my finger. It's got rocks in it. I wanted to have jewels in it. I'm like, if I'm going to have a piece of jewelry for the rest of my life, well, let's, let's bling it up a little bit, right? Somebody made this thing. Somebody mined that gold. Somebody got that diamond out of the ground. How much were they paid? What happened to the water around it? What kind of living conditions did they live in? Oh, man. Ugh, now my ring doesn't feel as good. True self-examination involves more than just whether I yelled at the person when I cut them off on Ina Road. 
It involves more than whether I can, you know, just meet the basics of human decency in a society. True examination means getting to the root of who we are and how we live. And that's where, I don't say we're totally depraved, but we are definitely, there, there, there's, something, there's something dark there in pretty much any part you want to look at because we are not perfect. And we don't live in a perfect world. You know the old saying, I think it was Socrates said it, the unexamined life is not worth limit living. I'm not sure I'd go that far and say not worth living. I'd say maybe the unexamined faith is not as deep, not as rich, not as open to love. That if I have an unexamined self, maybe I'm not ever going to experience as much. If you aren't willing to step out over the dark void, the deep, scary waters between you and Jesus, you just won't know him as well. And this is what stepping out is. Becoming self-aware, putting your trust that Jesus will be there, holding his hand, so when you go over and you make that step and you go into the scary parts and you, you look at the things that are hard to look at, you have the confidence to do it because you have faith that Jesus' hand is there to hold you when you go over the stormy waters. Amen.